Oh, let's get it. Monday, March 22nd, 2021. Born the Battle, brought to you by the Department of Veterans Affairs, the podcast that focuses on inspiring veteran stories and puts a highlight on important resources, offices, and benefits for our veterans. I'm your host, Marine Corps veteran Tanner Iskra. Hope you had a great week outside of podcast land. Way back in episode 150, I talked about my first VA home loan purchase when we broke down the VA home loan program with VA's home loan guarantee office. Well, it looks like I'll be selling it very, very soon uh, if it's not sold already. Sad day as it's kind of my last tie to Charlotte, which quickly became my new home during my first enlistment in the first Civ Div. No new ratings or reviews this week. However, I did see a lot of support from the last couple of episodes on social media. People seem to like Don and Graciela's story and learn about what retired Major General Aylward is doing over at the Vietnam War commemoration. So that's good to see. As always, appreciate the feedback every week. If you're so inclined, please feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It's a good It's a good way to not only communicate with us here directly at our podcast, but it also gets the podcast recognized by more veterans in podcast land through the the Apple podcast algorithms at the same time. News releases I got for this week. First one says for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs expands the language capability of the COVID coach app to help Spanish speaking veterans and civilians cope with mental health issues during the COVID-19 pandemic. App users can easily switch from English to Spanish, allowing veterans with limited English proficiency equal access to a variety of practical tools, information, and resources to track well-being, mood swings, and post-traumatic stress disorder symptoms. The COVID-19 pandemic has had an outsized impact on certain communities, with Black, Latino, Native, and Pacific Islander communities experiencing disproportionate rates of infection and death from the virus. Among veterans, veterans of color account for 46% of all infections while representing only 26% of the overall veteran population. COVID Coach was developed by VA's National Center for PTSD's Mobile Mental Health Team in conjunction with the Office of Mental Health and Suicide Prevention. Direct links to resources are available within the app for those who may need additional professional support. The COVID Coach is not intended to replace needed professional care. You can download the app on iOS and Android devices or from VA's mobile app store. Contact mobilementalhealth at va.gov regarding any questions about COVID Coach. Uh, Download that myself. A lot of really good tools in there. A lot of good stuff. All right, next one says, for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs received compassionate use approval from the Food and Drug Administration in February for a groundbreaking in-house developed medical device to help improve the quality of life of a veteran with a rare hearing condition. FDA's compassionate use authorization allows patients access to prototype medications, biologics, and medical devices for medical treatment outside of clinical trials when no comparable or satisfactory alternative therapy options exist. What was it? Well, the VA was granted the ability to prescribe an experimental 3D printed audiological device specifically designed for a single patient, said VA Director of 3D Printing Network, Beth Ripley. The 76-year-old veteran patient has a rare medical condition 
that causes the ear canal to collapse and muffle sound. The 3D printed stent is inserted into the external ear canal to keep it from collapsing and allows sound to pass through. The device is not surgically implanted and can be easily removed by the patient. This unique hearing aid was designed and created by the Integrated 3D Printing Network team at the Ralph H. Johnson VA Medical Center in Charleston, South Carolina. That's cool. That's awesome. All right, next one says, for immediate release, the American Rescue Plan Act of 2021 signed into law on March 11th by President Joseph Biden equips the Department of Veterans Affairs to ensure veterans have continued access to quality health care and protections against COVID-19, as well as providing needed economic relief. The $1.9 trillion coronavirus economic relief package for Americans allocates $17 billion in support of VA's nationwide response to the pandemic. Outlined for VA in the American Rescue Plan are as follows. There's a bunch of bullets. It says, uh, $14.5 billion for COVID-19-related healthcare, including information technology and facility requirements, ensuring access for 9.2 million enrolled veterans who may have delayed care or have more complex health care needs as a result of the pandemic, as well as resources for veterans currently receiving housing support and an estimated 37,000 homeless veterans. $1 billion for debt forgiveness related, related to co-payments or other cost-sharing veterans paid for VA health care and to reimburse veterans who paid a copay or other cost-sharing for care and prescriptions provided from April 6, 2020 through September 30, 2021. $750 million for both construction grants and payments to state homes to greatly improve the living conditions of our most vulnerable veterans who reside in these facilities. $386 million to initiate a COVID-19 Veteran Rapid Retraining Assistance Program that provides up to 12 months of training and employment assistance for unemployed veterans to enter high-demand occupations. Interesting. Hope to read and maybe ask a, do a benefits breakdown on, on that one. Very interesting. All right, next bullet is $262 million to reduce the backlog of compensation and pension claims, which has grown from 76000 in March 2020 to more than 212000 in March of 2021. Man, I remember doing benefits breakdowns where we were actually decreasing that. The ARP funding will enable the Veteran Benefits Administration to reduce the claims backlog to around 100000 by September of 2022. $100 million to facilitate the modernization of VA's badly antiquated supply chain system by accelerating the department's transition to the Defense Medical Logistics Standard Support. $80 million to establish the Department of Veterans Affairs Employee Leave Fund which provides funds for paid leave for COVID-19 related causes and $10 million to decrease the board of veterans appeals hearing request currently at over 87,000 and intake to which there are 35,000 appeals backlog. These efforts help veterans economically by resolving their VA appeals and allowing them to begin receiving compensation and services. There are also one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, more bullets about additional American Rescue Plan support that veterans could qualify for. And to learn all of those, go to www.whitehouse.gov forward slash American hyphen rescue hyphen plan. There's some stuff in there if you're a small business owner, restaurant revitalization grants, SNAP benefits, uh, child tax credits, all that stuff. There's, you know, if you're, if, if you qualify, uh, those are some kind of specialized benefits in the plan. Okay, next one says for immediate release, the Department of Veterans Affairs opened a new ATLAS site 
on March 15th at the American Legion Post 12 in Wickenburg, Arizona. This gives veterans associated with the Phoenix and Northern Arizona VA healthcare systems the option to receive VA care closer to home in a setting that feels like a doctor's office, offering both the technology and privacy for veterans to connect with their VA care team through a video visit. To learn more about Atlas Sites and to find out one of and to find out if there's one near you, go to connectedcare.va.gov forward slash partners forward slash Atlas. All right, so this week's interview, I've got a twofer for you. It is still Women's History Month, and National Vietnam War Veterans Day is coming up. Uh, matter of fact, one week from the drop of this episode. This week's guest is a Vietnam veteran nurse who served in country during some of that war's heaviest times, from 68 to 69. She served in the burn unit in, and I hope I say this right, Vung Tau at the 36th EVAC, and she served closer to Cambodia's border at Pleiku's 71st EVAC Hospital. After her service, she founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial, whose mission is to promote the healing of Vietnam women veterans through the placement of the Vietnam Women's Memorial on the grounds of the Vietnam Veterans Memorial in Washington, D.C. To identify the military and civilian women who served during the Vietnam War, to educate the public about their role, and to facilitate research on the psychological, physiological, and sociological issues correlated to their service. The project has the support of every major veterans group in the country and more than 40 other diverse organizations. She is Army veteran, Diane Carlson Evans. Enjoy. Now you're out in Montana, right? I am. Wide open country out there. It is, and it's beautiful, and it's it's not that's no longer a secret. People are starting to move here. There, there's less than a million, <laughs> and, but all of a sudden, people have discovered us. <laughs> yeah, I think so. Even my wife has. Uh, it's one of my wife's dreams to to live in Montana right now. Uh, I, I take that back. Uh, I, I think she likes the idea of it, but she's never lived it. We have one of the highest uh, per capita ratio of veterans in Montana. A lot of young men and women uh, over the years have joined the military. So we have a very high percentage of veterans here. And and uh, we have a wonderful VA hospital here in Helena, Fort Harrison. And uh, we have, I don't know, maybe 13 CBOC clinics now. We're a very big rural state. Many veterans are very rural. <clears throat> They're out in the hinterlands sure. by choice. They like out where they can fish and hunt, right? Yeah, I grew up in Washington State in the country, uh, and but my wife is an army brat. She did not grow up in the country. Uh, and when we're out on the property where I grew up on, out in Washington State, when she's alone in that, she cannot be alone in the house at night. And then she gets scared when my dad's pet raccoons come up for feeding time. So I don't exactly know how, if we moved to Montana, how it would work out for the, my wife out there, but I love it. I absolutely well, love it. She'd just have to carry her bear spray wherever she goes. <laughs> there, that's all. There you go. <laughs> I do. I don't go out the door without my bear spray. I'm not kidding. Oh my gosh. But you know, it doesn't keep us inside. Montanans, they, they do not stay inside. They're not scared. No. They, we just, we just prepare ourselves. We're prepared, right? Exactly. People here hunt. And uh, they trap and uh, fish 
and uh, I'm not in that to that so much. I'm a hiker. I love the hiking and the skiing. Gotcha, so, gotcha. Uh, I, I don't carry bear spray when I'm hiking or skiing because in the winter because they're hibernating and I don't have to watch my back. Sure, sure. No, I I, I love it. I love it. Out, outstanding. Um, well, Diane, the first question we always ask here on Born the Battle is where and when did you know that the military was going to be the next step in your life? The military. Well, my oldest brother, we were farm kids. My oldest brother joined the Army, was in the 101st Airborne, and went to Fort Campbell, Kentucky, I think. Mm-hmm. And then he he was jumping and injured his knee, and that ended that, paratroopers. And um, he went to Fort Lee, Virginia. And I was 15, and I went to visit him. Mm. And it was... You know, it was a good experience. They had an army hospital there. I knew I was going to be a nurse. And how and why? Why nursing? My aunt had served in World War II right off the farm in North Dakota. She joined uh, the army as, and was a whack in World War II because she wanted to serve her country as well. Her brother was in. And when she got out, she used the GI Bill and went to Columbia University and got her doctorate degree. Oh, wow. Well, I thought that was amazing for a woman back then and of, you know, of the time to, to have the courage to join the army and, and then use the GI Bill to, you know, make a, uh, an amazing life that she went on to teach college then after that. So I admired her greatly, but it was the sixties when my friends, um, were being drafted and they were farm boys and they didn't have deferments. If you weren't in college and you were a young boy, 18, 19, you got drafted. And a lot of these farm boys, including my brothers, my second brother, uh, second oldest brother after my oldest was actually drafted. And there was a war going on in Vietnam and I started watching the six o'clock news. I started nursing school in 1964 and I knew I was going. There was no doubt in my mind I was going to Vietnam. And by 1966, when I was um, in nursing school, I went downtown Minneapolis, found an Army nurse recruiter, and asked her how, how I could go to Vietnam. And she looked at me, you know, <laughs> and she said, in the Army, you know, there's no guarantees. But she said, I can almost guarantee you, you will go to Vietnam if you want to. We are so short of nursing nurses. So I signed on the dotted line. Went home and told my parents that did not go over very well. Sure. With my dad, especially because he had two sons in the army and he never, in his wildest dreams, thought he would send one of his daughters off to war. So, yeah. So, so you were in Vietnam in 68 and 69. I mean, those are some of the heaviest years of that war. And you were there as a trauma nurse and, and surgical and burn wards. What, what are some of the things that, someone may not know, but should know about roles like that in a combat zone? I think for those listeners today who are listening, when we, let's do something relative here and do some comparisons. Sure. When we see all these doctors and nurses and the the medical professionals, all of them, respiratory therapists, everyone in the hospital caring for COVID patients, And the numbers are huge. Over half a million Americans have died from COVID. And many of those died tragic deaths on ventilators. And they couldn't see their family. They couldn't have loved ones. They couldn't even have a chaplain 
on their side, who did they have? The nurse or the doctor was there with them, the only person allowed in the room because of COVID. And huge numbers, it's like mass casualties. When you think about in one year in the United States of America, losing over a half a million people, we didn't lose that many people in World War II in five years. And, you know, over 58,000 men and women in the Vietnam War over 10 years. The numbers are enormous. Yeah. And so uh, my hat goes off to, I think of our medical professionals today because they are going through what us nurses in Vietnam and previous wars also experienced. And that was, we were the only one with that dying soldier. Their families could not be there. I mean, that wasn't allowed. <laughs> when a young man, and I say men because they were mostly men, there are some women who have purple hearts from Vietnam as well. Sure. All of my patients in that year were injured men. So when I say men, I'm not, you know, leaving out the women, but primarily men and their families did not get word from the Red Cross. Well, you can come and visit your son now. That did not happen. So we were there with these young men. We were the last person they saw and we held their hand and we stayed with them till they, you know, we gave them to God. And what else could we do? We did our best to save their lives from those helicopter pilots and those field medics, God bless all of them. Those field medics and the chopper pilots who are true heroes in all of our eyes, they got the wounded to us. And uh, the statistics show that there was a 98% save rate. If that chopper pilot, <clears throat> you know, the golden hour, if, that if those medics and that chopper pilot could get that wounded, to us within an hour to our hospital, we saved them. Yeah. 68, 69, it was mass casualties frequently. I believe, I could be corrected, but I believe 35,000 of the names on the wall are from 68 and 69. Wow. They are the tallest plates. They are the most plates at the Vietnam Veterans Memorial. So for us nurses and medics, um, you know, we ran out of supplies. We didn't have enough resources. We didn't have enough staff. And we just, wow. you know, one of the questions I think that people have said to be, especially fellow nurses who are civilian nurses, the question they have asked me is, I could never have done that. I, I just, I don't know how you, how did you do this? And I said, you could do it as a nurse or a medical professional. You forget about yourself and you measure up because that soldier's life is depending on you. And the war had also heated up in Vietnam. Yeah. There was, there, you know, there was Tet. And, you know, there, the, the Vietnamese, the, the NVA, North Vietnamese Army, and the Viet Cong, the communist sympathizers in black pajamas, who looked like average, you know, Vietnamese. We didn't know who they were because they were in black pajamas. They weren't wearing a military uniform. Yeah. And they came out of the, well, let's say they came out of the hedgerows. They came out of the villages. They came out of nowhere in huge numbers to trip up, uh, and no pun intended, with trip wires and, you know, land mines and um, all the crafty, creative things they came up with to disable our soldiers. And it cost them no money. Yeah, and and it's disabled, you know, like you're like you're saying the the Punjabi traps, the all the stuff that was just horrific little well, 
horrific injuries the, that we had have. a lot of punji steak injuries and oh. the punji steaks you know what those are it's a punji it's like a sharp bamboo steak they would lace it with human feces get that picture oh. and then they were buried in the ground and a soldier would come by and step on it it was instant pain instant um time in the hospital is very disabling because of the infection and vietnam was a very 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 dirty you know infectious you know there wasn't a lot of sanitation and then of course with this you know creative thing they came up with so our patients would come in with punji stick wounds and we'd load them with antibiotics and if it was an orthopedic if it went through the bone or when there was an orthopedic injury a bone and that getting infected then there would be gangrene there would be all kinds of problems the horrible infections when morley safer on 60 minutes do you remember him i don't but I do okay, you're too young. <laughs> <laughs> sure, sure, sure. You, know, you do know about 60 Minutes. Oh, yes, ma'am. Yeah, I've spent many time with my, my grandmother watching 60 Minutes on Sunday night. Absolutely. Absolutely. So Morley Safer was a war correspondent in Vietnam off and on for five years. Okay. He wanted to interview Vietnam nurses that had never been done on 60 Minutes before. So I got a call from 60 Minutes. I was asked if I would come on and and be interviewed about women who'd served in Vietnam and and about the Vietnam Women's Memorial. So I found four other nurses. We flew to New York. We were interviewed. And I think one of the most, um, I think, profound interviews was Maggie Ariola, who was still in the military, still wearing the uniform, so she was very reluctant to go on 60 Minutes sure. because she said, you know, I'm still in the Army. And for those of us who've been in the Army, we know that, you know, we are not at liberty to just, you know, say anything we want at any time. We, exactly. You know, yeah, yeah. I said, Maggie, just share your story. People will be interested in what you did in Vietnam. So she had B-roll video from herself in Vietnam. So now 60 Minutes is portraying Maggie in an emergency room in Vietnam. And she, she's young. She's wearing pigtails. She's chewing gum. She's hanging an IV on a soldier in the ER. She's doing her job. And Mr. Safer said, how could you do what you did every day in that emergency room in Vietnam? And Maggie didn't really respond. You know, how do you answer that in five seconds or less? Yeah, right. And then he said, did you ever cry? And she said, only once. And he, he, Mr. Safer said, and? And Maggie said, well, this young man came into our emergency room, and he had battlefield amputations. Both of his legs, both of his arms were missing. He had an eye dangling out of its socket, and his torso had blast injuries, and he was still talking to us. Wow. He hadn't gone into shock, Tanner. Wow. And because of those medics doing those, their cut downs and the chopper pilots getting that, he got, they, he got there within that golden hour, the first hour. And the young man was talking to Maggie and said, I know I don't have any arms and I know I don't have any legs, but please tell my mother I love her. And then he wanted a rabbi because he was Jewish and there wasn't a rabbi at the hospital. So she asked the medic to go get one of the, I believe a surgeon who was a, who was Jewish. 
someone that could come and be with him for his last moments. Oh, my gosh. And um, this was just, you know, had never been seen on national news before that a woman, a nurse who'd been in Vietnam was taught, what is this like to be a nurse in Vietnam? Well, she just, in five minutes, she just gave you a picture that was just heart wrench. I was just bawling because it brought back so many memories. And Mr. Safer was just astonished. And he said, well, did he live? And she said, I don't know, because we did our job in the emergency room. We did triage. And then uh, we sent him off to the surgeons. And she felt guilty all these years because she never found his mother, never told the mother that her son loved him. And she was a little afraid to do it because maybe she would ask questions and she didn't really want to tell the mom, you know, what what he looked like when he came. So the beauty of this story is there was a man in his 40s. He was listening to 60 Minutes and he started screaming at his wife, who was in the kitchen, that he said, that's my nurse. She's talking about me. How many Jewish boys wanted their mother when they and didn't have any arms and legs? And he was blind. He lost both eyes. So he's blind. This is a Vietnam. You think about the tragedy of war, losing your limbs, your eyesight, but you survive because of the mission and the duty of the medical workers. And so uh, they were astonished. Here's a nurse talking about him on national TV. So they called 60 Minutes and they found each other after all those years and could hug. Wow. And he wanted to. Thank you to her. So that was a kind of a roundabout way, Tanner, of um, uh, answering your question about what was it like during the, that 68, 69, when we had numerous patients came, come into us like this, but they weren't all as lucky as he was. Sure. Wow. Uh, my gosh. That's, and that's just one day in the life of a nurse. That's just one day. And, of course, we know that the wall would be much higher and much wider if it wasn't for the medical professionals. The The quality of care was, I think, I never doubted the quality of the care that we gave to our troops in Vietnam. Sure. Did we run out of ventilators? Did we run out of supplies? Yes. Were we rocketed and mortared? And on, <laughs> while we were trying to care for patients and were our hospitals did patients die in the hospital, in their hospital bed from attacks? Yes. You know, the the troops, God love them. They felt safe when they came to us. They were in a hospital. They were with American nurses. Um, they felt safe, but no place was safe. When I, when I spoke to Graciela, who flew, she flew combat support missions during Operation Southern Watch in the 90s. And if you're listening to that, you can find that episode in our, in our archives. The, the combat exclusion laws uh, for women didn't really start lifting until the 90s, like she was talking about. However, I don't think much of that mattered during, say, the Tet Offensive or the Vietnam War. Um, and when it was all said and done, there are eight women nurses on the Vietnam Wall, correct? Well, there are. And the, the fact is, you know, basic training, well, that all goes out the window. It, it sounds nice in a classroom, but nothing is in a classroom when you're in a war zone. The Geneva Convention, <laughs> our hospitals were rocketed and mortared. And both of the hospitals that I worked with, we were rocketed frequently. 
They they didn't care about the Geneva Convention. There was no exclusion. (laughs) There was no discrimination between combatant and non-combatant. But non-combatants, their names are on the wall, too, because they were in the wrong place at the wrong time. And nothing was safe in Vietnam. And the other thing that was hard for us nurses, Tanner, was we were not told, we were not forewarned that when we got to a hospital in Vietnam that we would also be caring for the Vietnamese and the mountain yards up at the Central Highlands, oh, yeah. the mountain yard people, that we would be caring for them side by side with our soldiers in our hospital units. That's the Geneva Convention, to care for innocent civilians who were burned, napalm, white phosphorus, bullets, you name it, we got them. And that was, I can't tell you how hard that was. So we have these innocent little children mixed in with suffering, you know, uh, casualties, and they're listening to children cry in the middle of the night. Well, what's that like? And, And they're Vietnamese. So they, you know, there's that factor of the families would come in to see their, you know, injured loved ones. And who knew if they were Viet Cong, and they, some of them, I know they were, the enemy coming into our hospitals. So we were dealing with a lot. And, you know, the, I have to talk about the medics. The medics, <laughs> I, I loved my medics. They were amazing. <laughs> but out in the field, if a medic saw, especially a child, um, teenager or, or younger, that was not injured by weaponry, but had tetanus or plague or had bitten, been bitten by a snake. They felt sorry for them, and they brought them into our hospital. Oh, wow. That, that's, that wasn't the deal, right? The yeah. deal was injuries from yeah. weapons and bombs, you know, napalm, what you name it. Yeah. So now in my unit, I, I was with a 15-year-old girl who died of tetanus. And I'm telling you, listeners, take your tetanus shots. You do not want to get what we call lockjaw. And it was a horrible, horrible death. It affects the nervous system. And I was with a young girl who died of plague. And we were not supposed to get, you know, I was head nurse. And he said, put a sign up and she will die. She's going to die. We're just giving her comfort and comfort and care but no uh, mouth-to-mouth resuscitation because this plague can be transmitted through the saliva. So I put the sign up, do not resuscitate under no conditions, no mouth-to-mouth. And I heard this commotion. We had put her behind a screen. Well, what good is that, a screen? It's not isolation, you know. It was just a sheet to separate her from the casualties, the patients, so they didn't have to watch this horrible death, and it was horrible. And I went behind the sheet, and there was Huddleston. He lives in Australia now. There was Huddleston giving this young girl mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. And I went up to him, and I pulled him away. I pulled him away from her. And I said, Huddleston, what are you doing? And he said, well, I had to do something. That, that's a real hero. These medics, they were there to save lives. Yeah, obviously with that story, my gosh. Um, Diane, you, you know, combat exclusion is, is all but over. Uh, women can serve in any role in the military. And you, you've talked about these medics. 
what does it mean to you as, as someone who served before the exclusion was lifted that women can now be, say, that that combat medic that is now saving a Marine's life uh, before even being airlifted? I can't tell you how proud I am of these women today. Flying Apache helicopters, they're flying dust off helicopters. They're they're warriors. They're carrying weapons. They know how to use. They know how to shoot that weapon. They know how to clean it. <laughs> these are amazing women. But they had to stand on our shoulders to get there. Yeah. Like we, Vietnam women, we stood on the shoulders of the women who served in Korea, World War II and World War One. They opened doors for us. And we opened doors for these women because we proved that we, we're not shrinking violets. We can do our job. So the whole concept that, let's say, men had about, well, women can't be in combat because if they're in combat, the men will be so busy taking care of them that the men won't get their job done because they're protecting the women. Well, I just found that laughable. Just one night in Vietnam, when the air raid siren went off, we knew that meant incoming, and then we heard the incoming. Because the first thing you hear is the air raid siren. Well, the first thing you hear is probably the incoming. And then the air raid. And then you grab, grab your helmet. The first thing you do is grab your helmet and grab your flak jacket. Your training kicks in, right? Yeah, yeah absolutely. And um, I'm in my unit that I'm the head nurse on. And I am getting every patient under the bed that I can get under the bed. But I, they really got themselves. I mean... A patient in Vietnam is in a bed and he hears incoming. He goes to the floor himself. You don't have to say, oh, <laughs> they were doing it on their own. They, they hit for cover. And but some of them had blood lines and IV lines and they were they were coming apart and there's blood squirting out everywhere. The IVs are coming apart. Oh. We had these long extensions on them. So if they did have to get under the bed, there was an extension line that was long enough to do that, but in the chaos, they came apart. So I was getting bloodlines back together, IVs back together, and for the patients that were on ventilators, I and my medics and the one other female nurse that was on duty with me that night, two medics and another nurse, and we threw mattresses on top of our ventilator patients and those with chest tubes who couldn't get under a bed and those who with other tubes that, you know, so we're flying around the unit, us women, taking care of the men. And then there was a little Montagnard girl who was in a crib. She was four years old, we thought, four or five or six. You never did know. And she had circumferential burns from napalm when it hit her village. You oh couldn't throw gosh. a mattress because she had burns all over her body. Yeah. And she started screaming because it reminded her of the night they were napalmed and she screamed and she screamed and she screamed. So now get this picture. We have incoming and there's shrapnel flying all over the place. It's loud. There's rockets and mortars dropping. So there's thuds and thuds and this little girl screaming The the patients didn't scream. They, they were stoic. These guys were amazing. And um, so I, I did a quick assessment of my ward, 44 beds of seriously ill patients. And the last, the very last thing I did was I went over to the little girl and I couldn't do anything for her. So I held her hand while I was crawling under her crib. And that of course was my protection, right? A crib. <laughs> it's a joke. <laughs> but um, so that scenario paints a picture 
to people when I explained to them women were not shrinking violence. Us women in Vietnam, we were protecting the men. That was our job. We didn't expect any of those guys to say, oh, hey, nurse, let me do that for you. No, (laughs) they didn't do that. We were there for them. We were brave. We didn't think of it at the time. People have said to me, Diane, you were so brave. And I said, well, I didn't think of being brave. I was just doing my job. That's where your training kicks in. And so that paints another picture for you of, of what it was like for us women in Vietnam. Now, when it comes to combat, this is what I've said. They didn't train us or allow us to even have weapons. Oh, wow. A few nurses in a few hospitals carried their own 45s, but they had them illegally. We weren't supposed to have a weapon, by the way. Not The male nurses had them, but not the females. So they send us women off to Vietnam, and we can be shot at, but we can't shoot back. But we were in combat. So I have had a lot of issues with a lot of interviews over the past years with young uh, people interviewing me. And it's like, well, you weren't in combat. Oh, I wasn't? Well, were you there with me? (laughs) We were in combat zones. We were combat nurses, but we didn't carry weapons. I think it's important to to highlight because, like I said, uh, you know, the combat exclusion zone is not just a it's a it's really a a paper shield. Okay, you can say that, but. This is what it was. But there's that image and that stereotype. So my hooch mate from Vietnam, Edie, she and I spent nights together under our beds and our hooches when we weren't on duty and, and the incoming was coming. And we we rolled under our bed and spent nights together under each other's beds. And later, years later, Edie said to me, Diane, she said, what were we over there? Were we soldiers? Nobody ever calls us soldiers. We were just nurses. And I said, Edie, don't ever say that. Don't ever say we were just nurses. We were nurses and we were soldiers. And not only that, now we call women warriors. And we were warriors too. But it was all about the framework of the um, military at the time wanting to protect women and women shouldn't be in combat and women shouldn't be here and what. So we, we went where we weren't wanted. We were not wanted in combat, but we were needed. Yeah. And and the nurses fulfilled that word need. Every soldier needs medical help. And and let's face it, the doctors have their job and the nurses have their we need both. Yeah. We need doctors, we need medics, we need corpsmen, we need we need nurses. We're a team. But we were denigrated to this pigeonhole this category like oh just nurses only nurses are allowed to go off to war but they're not in combat they're in safe areas well tell that to the nurses who've lost their lives yeah many of them who died especially world war one and world war two in great numbers you know I, I totally agree with you and, and with the with the combat exclusion you know pretty much all but over um it's it's now based on merit you know it's something that you and your colleagues have wrestled with for years and hopefully that's coming to an end. Make those standards. And if they meet them and they have the qualifications and the skills, then they should be doing the job if they step up and want to do it. And, uh, and we can see now women in leadership. When I was in the military, a woman, heaven forbid, could not be a general. Yeah. And now how many do we have? The last time I checked, we had 75 generals, and that was a few year, women. That was a few years ago. And we need leadership. We know we, we, it's not just 
the those in the trenches, but we need leadership in the in the female ranks as well. Because, you know, you put women at the table and it's a better table, right? I think the outcome is always better when there's women. <laughs> I, know, I know when there's a decision in the Iskra household, it's better to have my <laughs> wife at the table <laughs> than, than not. <laughs> and women, when black nurses wanted to join the military, there was a, the um, discrimination was vicious. Mm. And they, they didn't want black nurses taking care of white soldiers. And I've read books on this where white soldiers said, I don't want her touching me. Wow. How far have we come? And we can talk about Native American women, Hispanic. <laughs> we can talk about all of them. It, you know, and, and as women, we're women. Yeah. And um, when we step up to serve and can do it with skill and integrity and, and perform and get the job done, of course, that's a better America. Comes down to performance, period. While you were in, give me either your best friend or your greatest mentor. My best friend in the military was Edie, because when I got up to play coup, I had transferred from another hospital. I had asked for a trans. I was in the Delta, down in the Rice Paddy area, mm -hmm. 36 evacuation hospital on the South China Sea. I had six months under my belt, and I went to the chief nurse and told her I wanted to go north. And she said, why do you want to do that? Because north meant more fierce fighting. And she said, well, I said, well, I'm ready. I said, I, 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 I'm ready to do something different, and I want to go where the fighting is, closer to the fighting. Yeah. So she sent me to play coup, so be careful what you ask for. Yeah. But that was perfect for me because by now, even after six months as such a young nurse, when you've started that many IVs and changed that many dressings and saw that kind of stuff I had already seen, I was ready for something worse. And they made me head nurse as a first lieutenant. It was a major slot on this 44-bed unit where we were getting casualties right out of the field, like I explained, and from Cambodia. Edie had come from the third field hospital in Saigon. And she had transferred north as well. Come to find out she's from Minnesota. I'm from Minnesota. We hit it off. We were hooch mates. We had each other's back. <laughs> you know, when you're, let's say, okay, let me say this. When I was in the military, women were less than 1% of the entire military force. Yeah. Okay. What does that mean? It means we're surrounded by men. Yes. And uh, and I don't know what the statistics are, but I'm going to say 98% of the men that we worked with and that we took care of and that we were a team were wonderful. These were good, decent men. We worked together. They watched our backs. We watched theirs. We had no fear of them. Then there's the 2% or whatever it is of the predators. You know, yeah. well, what happens in the military is happening on the outside, which the civilian sector transfers to the yeah. military sector. So women, we were like battle buddies. We watched each other's back. We um, supported each other. We got tight. The young, we were 21, 20, the, we were between, average age of the nurse in Vietnam was between 21 and 25. But mentors, I had some good mentors. I had some wonderful doctors. A few senior officers in the Corps who were good mentors, but I, I would say it was it was lacking because we were we were so busy. I mean, 
Sure. We just had to get in there and start working and do our job. And we, we learned fast because, first of all, we're young. We think we're bulletproof. <laughs> yeah. And we have energy. So the military, in its wisdom, why do they send 18, 19, 20-year-old men, used to be men, now women, off to war? Because <laughs> we can't see ourselves dead. And we have energy and we're strong. I was very high energy. I didn't do drugs or alcohol in Vietnam, thankfully. I, I, that wasn't one of my choices to deal with the, you know, and I, I'm not judgmental. Everybody had their way of dealing with the tragedy and the trauma and, and it, alcohol was practically free when I was in the military. It was so cheap <laughs> drink for 25 cents or something like that, I guess, but I was kind of afraid of it. So I didn't have that to kind of lean on or, you know, go to the officer's club and just, you know, sit and you know, drink and drown my miseries. So I would go back to my hooch and just listen to music. And the music that was going on in the world at the time was priceless. Oh my gosh. I loved it. Yeah. It was just, you know, think, think of all the fabulous music that came out of the sixties. Absolutely. Music was precious. And we, I had a reel to reel tape recorder. We, we traded with each other and, you know, we would take that recorder and tape music and, but there wasn't a lot of downtime because we worked 12, 14 hour shifts every day of the week. If we were lucky, we got a day off. Wow. Of course. So Diane, when, when did you leave the military? So that was 1969. Okay. I was out of the army. I was done. Got a job in a civilian hospital and I lasted three weeks. Oh, wow. I hated it. I couldn't take care of appendectomies and gallbladder patients and people who were whining and complaining about a little bit of pain when I had just come from Vietnam. And uh, they, my skills, they wouldn't let me start IVs. I put down an NG tube because the doctor ordered it, and I put the NG t- nasal gastric tube. It takes a little skill to do that. I'd, I'd done it a hundred times. <laughs> and the, the chief nurse, the director of nursing at the hospital, called me into her office the next day and said, "Miss Carlson, Nurses do not st- do not start IVs here without being supervised for three times first. You've been starting IVs. I have complaints against you. You put down an NG tube. Nurses here do not do that. Only the interns do that. And it was I was getting my hands slapped for doing things I'd been doing in the military like hundreds of times. What I wanted to say to her actually was I've started more IVs in one year than you'll start in a lifetime. And you need to super- <laughs> That's awesome. That's outstanding. <laughs> I, that. I could not say that. And then when I went in, you'll 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 find this just hilarious or shocking. When I went into HR to to give my notice, and I said, um, and I'd only been there three weeks, so <laughs> yeah. I put in notice, and she said, "Can you give us two weeks?" And I said, "I'm sorry." But I cannot. I'm going to Madigan Army Hospital at Fort Lewis, Washington to get a job. I'm very unhappy here. And she looked at me and she said, can you tell me why? And I said, well, I was in, I just came from Vietnam and I was doing all the things daily, multiple times that you tell me I cannot do here. And I, I'm just very, I do not feel fulfilled feel fulfilled as a nurse here. My skills are not recognized. Yeah. And she looked at me and do you know what she said to me? No. What'd she say? And of course I was 22 years old. I was young. I was female. And she looked at me and then she looked at me from my face down to my feet. 
she looked me over and she said, well, you don't look like you've been in the army. You've got to be kidding me. I am not. I never forgot it. I never forgot it. And I knew at that moment I had to, I had to leave. So Edie, Edie, my hooch mate is back from Vietnam and she has, she has a year left to go. So they send her to Madigan army hospital at Fort Lewis. And I said, Edie, I'm going with you. I'll get a job there. Now remember I'm out of the army. She's still in. I'll get a job at Madigan and um, we'll be roommates. So we, (laughs) that's outstanding. I bought, a 1969 Cougar, Mercury Cougar with the savings from Vietnam. She bought a Plymouth Barracuda. We had these hot <laughs> V8 muscle cars that we didn't even know what we were doing having cars like this, except they were pretty. And we drove these two cars to Madigan Army Hospital, and I got a job immediately, and they put me right in a unit where I could do, I was put down in G tubes. I was starting IVs and I loved it. I was back taking care of patients coming home from Vietnam. And after a few weeks, I thought, what am I doing here? Working as a civilian in an army hospital. I'm an army nurse. So I flew to Chicago where I had to go to sign up again. And they, they assigned me to Brook army medical center. And when I got there, you rejoined the army my- after that. I rejoined. I went back in. Oh, wow. It saved, probably it saved my life. Why, what, do you mean, what do you mean by that? It was not easy coming home from Vietnam. It, it was, there were war protests, and the protests weren't just against the war. They were against us. Yeah. Awful, you know, denigrative, horrible things were being said about us and to us. And I just clammed up and I, I didn't tell anybody I was there because if I did, I set myself up for humiliation. Like one person, when I, they asked where I'd been from high school, and I said, well, I've been in Vietnam. And she just looked at me and she said, well, would you go there for? It wasn't like, thank you for your service. Yeah. Or, oh, what was that like? Are you okay? It was, well, would you go there for? So most of us Vietnam vets, I can't speak for all of us, but many of us came home from Vietnam and just clammed up, didn't talk about it, tried to get on with our life yeah. and didn't want people. Vietnam vets have told me they didn't say on their application form that they were a Vietnam vet because if they did, they wouldn't get the job because the public thought Vietnam vets were drug crazed, glassy eyed baby killers. Yeah. You always hear uh, of your Vietnam veteran military transition stories. Uh, from the men who served. I don't, I don't think I've ever heard a woman's perspective on that time. So it's interesting. It wasn't easy for us either. Yeah. I was either going to get a job or go back to the university of Minnesota to further my degree. And so I went on campus first. I thought, well, I'll go back to school. I've got the GI bill, right? Mm -hmm. So I spent a week on the university of Minnesota campus, which was, is where I had done my academic work for nursing and it was so horrible. This was 196, August 1969. Well, it was fall when I started. And the anti-war protests and the mean-spirited things that were being said to Vietnam veterans and about them was so horrible, I couldn't stand it. I thought, I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to be part of this. I'm not listening to this. Uh, it was just too painful, too hurt. I had just seen how these men had suffered and died by the hundreds And now people were denigrating them. And I always said them because it was them. It was the men. I never said us until a reporter who was interviewing me back in the day said, 
Well, you're always talking about them. Weren't, aren't you a veteran? Why didn't you say us? You were part of this. And I said, but I never thought of it that way. I went to Vietnam to take care of the men. And I came home and I thought of the men and how they had suffered and died and how they were still in Vietnam being shot at. And the country was treating them like they were at fault for the war. Yeah. And we were just serving our country, putting on the uniform like we were asked to do. It was a very confusing, complicated time, Tanner. I, it's hard for me to explain it to you, but I, I couldn't be on that campus. So then I got a job at the civilian hospital. It was a trauma hospital. I thought, well, I should be happy there, and I was miserable. And then went to Madigan Army Hospital and felt like I was home. You had your Thelma and Louise adventure with Edie there and ended up in Madigan. <laughs> That's right. The chief nurse in Vietnam at my hospital in Pleiku was now working at Brook Army Medical Center. Yeah. And she met me at the door when I walked in. Well, she said, Captain Carlson, welcome back in the Army. And I just smiled and she said, yeah, I just promoted you to captain. Oh, wow. And she said, where do you want to work? And I said, you mean I get a choice? And she said, well, you can, you know, you can choose. I said, well, I want to work in surgical intensive care. And she said, good, that's where you've been assigned. <laughs> I already had that in, your, in my mind for you. How long were you in the, how long did you go back in service? How long did you serve? So I was, I was in six years, uh, um, almost seven, nine years, if you include my two years in the reserves. Okay. So um, I always say, you know, they tell you, I had to be in the reserves for two years afterwards. So if they sure. needed me, they, they could call me back up. Sure. But those were the best years of my life after, you know, the joy of raising four kids and having a wonderful family and all of that. Yeah. But, you know, I was proud of Army nursing. I was proud of Army nurses. I was proud of what we had done. It was outside of raising my kids, being an Army nurse was the greatest privilege of my life. And it was a privilege. Yeah, And I think any nurse who cares for any soldier or any dying COVID patient or any patient whose last words and last breaths are taken with you, it's, it's a privilege to be with that person. Yeah. And it's, it's something hard to describe or explain to someone who's not a medical professional, but you know, it, it there is such a um, connection there and, you know, later, years later, a book was written called A Piece of My Heart, and they interviewed nurses who served in Vietnam. And almost every one of us had said these words, a piece of my heart went with every soldier we were with when he died. Yeah. And, and your heart, how, how big can your heart be to lose so many that you still even have a heart left? You know, you do talk about how people just get cold after a while. You know, they just get, it goes cold. Um, how were you able to keep the warmness in your heart as you move, as, as you move through a career like that? I would say in Vietnam, I felt like a robot after, when you first get there, you feel nauseated and you feel, oh my God, you know, it's like the first mass cat, the first you know, the fear, the chaos, the seeing a soldier who are you going to save him or not? Yeah. And it is horrific, all of the above. And then after a while, you shut down your emotions. You have to, to measure up and get the job done, like I said earlier. 
And then you move on to the next and the next and the next. You do your job. You start the IV, you hang it, you start the IV, you know, you monitor, you monitor it, you monitor those patients, you know, every minute, every hour, every day for a year, you become robotic. But when I say that, I never lost my compassion. I never lost my caring for each patient. And I, and I hope each patient that I cared for felt that I really cared about him. So, but I shut down my own inner emotions. You know, I could go to sleep at night while we were so exhausted, but I never, you know, I just want to say this in Vietnam. I don't think I ever really slept at night. Sure. I was always on guard for when that a, a helicopter, I would wake up when I heard a helicopter, that meant casualties were coming in. One helicopter was no big deal. That's fine. The, the, if I'm off duty, they'll take care of that. Two helicopters, oh, there's a second one coming in. Oh, okay, that's that's probably fine. Then that third helicopter, you know, then it's like, oh, mass casualties. You don't even wait for the phone to ring. You just put your helmet and slack jack. You run to the hospital. So you were attuned to the sounds and incoming yeah. There was artillery hill, which was not far from our hospital, and the artillery was outgoing, right? It, it was ours. So it was outgoing artillery uh, defending, you know, our base. And that was fine. You heard it, but it didn't, your heart didn't start to pump. But incoming, immediately you knew that sound. You knew the sound of a gaggle of helicopters. That was mass casualties. You were constantly in tune to sounds. And you reacted. Are you quickly. are you still? Oh, it took me years to get over a helicopter flying overhead. Yeah. I I tell you, every helicopter that flew overhead for my over my house for years, I went out to see it, especially if it was a Huey, because you know the sound of a Huey. Yeah, it's different. Yeah, and a Huey was flying. You don't hear Hueys anymore; they're not flying. But uh, I was out the come, door. To come clo- come close to a Marine Corps base. You'll hear one. <laughs> you'll still hear the wop wop. <laughs> How did you find your way to, to founding the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project, which is now a foundation? So in 1982, the wall was dedicated. OK, when I heard about that, I knew I had to go. I had to find some names. I told my husband I'm going. I didn't want him with me. I said, honey, I went to Vietnam alone. I came home alone. I have to do this alone. He just shook his head. By now, he understood that I was not talking about Vietnam. I couldn't. He he knew it was off limits. I did not. I told him, don't ever ask me. I am not talking about it. It's in the past. Forget it. I appreciate you talking about it now. Finally, you know, I'm 74 years old. (laughs) (laughs) No, thank you for that. And I talk to him about it now. Yeah. But so in 82, I still was um, surviving and surviving meant you know, covering up. I didn't know what PTSD was. I didn't know I had it. I was avoiding, avoiding, avoiding. I wouldn't go to a Vietnam movie. The only thing I wasn't avoiding was to get out and watch that Huey fly up up above me. But so then, then soon after the wall was dedicated, I learned that there was this faction of Vietnam veterans who didn't like the wall. They called it a black gash of shame. They didn't like that it was underground. They didn't like that the designer was an Asian woman. They called her names. It was very disrespectful. These were kind of powerful men, many of them West Point graduates and combat soldiers. 
they got together and demanded that there be a statue of men, a, a figurative portrayal of how men looked in Vietnam. And they wanted these men to be looking at the names on the wall. So the Secretary of the Interior at the time, Secretary Watt, refused to give a building permit to the Vietnam Veterans Memorial Fund to build the wall unless they acquiesced and compromised to allow this other faction to add a statue of men. Interesting. So it immediately happened. They commissioned an artist, Frederick Hart, a very good sculptor. They told him what they wanted. It ended up with three men looking at the names on the wall. When I saw a picture in the newspaper of what was to be dedicated the following year in 84, I thought, I am going out there for that dedication. I want to see this. Yeah, not not, and that's a great that's a great statue as well out there. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. But when you have a statue now added to the wall of names, now when you visit, you'd see the men. You wouldn't, in a heartbeat, think about women in Vietnam because yeah. you wouldn't know they were there. Yeah. We were behind the scenes and we were behind the cameras. We were not on the six o'clock news. Yeah. People in America didn't know that women were in Vietnam, and we not just all nurses either, by the way other women serving in other capacities and civilian women, photojournalists, et cetera. So I went home and I said to Mike, my husband, I said, if they're going to have a statue to men, there has to be one to women. <laughs> there has to be a statue to women or they won't know. The visitors won't know women were there and, yeah. and what they did. Yeah. And Mike looked at me and he said, well, who's going to do that? Having visited the wall and seeing all those names and finding two names now I, now I couldn't sleep at night. The memories were coming back. They were, they were mostly nightmares. And I started thinking about all my patients, and I started grieving for them. So now what's happening? I'm depressed. I'm sad. I'm emotionally distraught. I'm thinking about my patients who I'd lost, whose names I couldn't find on the wall because I didn't know their, I didn't write their names down. And and then I started thinking about the women I served with. And these women deserved honor. These women deserved recognition. These women, the contribution. I was proud of these Army nurses I was working with. And I never had the privilege to work with the Navy. I worked with some Air Force because they were in the AIRVAC, flight nurses. I met them. Yeah. But I knew the Navy nurses were on the hospital ship Repose and Sanctuary on the South China Sea. And then I started learning about the women who served in the Women's Army Corps and, you know, and enlisted women. So I I made phone calls and then I attended the Minnesota salute to Vietnam veterans. It was a parade. And at that Minnesota salute, I found a sculptor, Roger Brodine, in Minneapolis, who had done the sculpture for the Capitol grounds honoring Vietnam veterans. And when I heard about him, I got his phone number and I called him. And I asked him if he'd ever done a statue honoring women, military women. And he said, no, but nobody ever asked me. And I said, could we talk? Mm. So long story short, five months later, Roger and I worked together on a sculpture honoring women. It was a single figure of an army nurse. And after that was finished, it was 36 inches high. It was a prototype. I started making phone calls, and I founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial Project, later Foundation. We changed the name. And I got a lot of people involved in this, a lot of good people who helped me get behind this. And we pulled it all together, and long story short, I went to every single American Legion, VFW, Disabled American Veterans, and Vietnam Veterans of America, 
and a couple of Purple Heart conventions. I started from the ground up. It was grassroots. It was starting from the boots on the ground, trenches. Go to local posts, and I was a boots on the ground nurse. I wanted to be an army nurse because I wanted to be boots on the ground. Yeah. And that's, you know, my military training, my military experience, and my nursing experience is what people have asked me, how did you get this done? And I said, I'd already done it. I'd already done this. Think of what I did in Vietnam. Work, energy, commitment, not giving up, tenacity, persistence. We never gave up on a soldier in Vietnam. No soldier was going to die on our watch because if he did, it would be our fault. So it was just grit. And and that is what held me together for 10 years to get that memorial built because the pushback, the vicious, um, the, the antagonists that came out of the woodwork who said women didn't deserve a memorial there and the obstacles they threw, they threw in our way and pushback, pushback and nasty letters to the editor and editorials about Diane Evans is, is a, you know, using the Vietnam dead to further her feminist cause. I mean, I was called some pretty, and this this is part of the feminist movement, and it's hard to resist army nurses, but in this case, we should. Uh, That was editorials, and the worst editorial said, well, this is like adding Elvis Presley to Mount Rushmore. It's unneeded and unnecessary, and it's just a tacky lawn ornament, is what they referred to our sculpture, the first design. So the first design by Roger Brodeen, now we finally got our ducks in order. We have a nonprofit, 501c3. We have IRS, you know, approval. We can raise funds. We have a board of directors. We have uh, we have bylaws, and we have people on our board. We are now a legitimate nonprofit to raise money and further our mission, which is to honor women who served during the Vietnam War. And you find lawyers, and you find people who have done this to help you. Yeah. So I found help. And, and I did not do this alone, number one. But but I was the driving force behind it. I can tell. <laughs> <laughs> so, so now we have our first hearing, Commission of Fine Arts hearing, and Jay Carter Brown, who chairs the commission, is very. It's a very blue. It's a very prestigious commission. They're the gatekeepers. Yeah, Scott Stump, uh, Marine veteran. He's also he was also a recent interview in our archives. He's currently the he's the founder of the Desert Storm Memorial that's going to be breaking ground this year, next to the Vietnam oh, Wall. Fantastic. He he told me it is a process. Uh, it is a process, <laughs> and they they make it hard for you because they want you to quit. Because yeah. the National Mall is the National Mall, and the proto- the policy and protocols and criteria should be hard. You know, we can't just put anything on the National Mall. Yeah. And I know that. Yeah. But I believed, I believed that women, there were no, <laughs> there was no, there were no memorials in Washington, D.C. honoring women when I started this effort. None. Zero. Zip. So that was part of my testimony. There are no memorials in our nation's capital honoring military women. I think it's time. And we are just wanting to complete an existing memorial, not a new memorial, but an existing memorial by adding yeah, an addendum. a statue. Yeah. Women as we've honored the men. <laughs> yeah. What did now did you now you talked about pushback in editorials. Did you get any hard pushback from say lawmakers or other Vietnam veteran groups? Um the v- Vietnam Veterans of America was fully in support, and they had Mary Stout. They had the first national commander of a veterans organization, a woman. Yeah. And Mary was very supportive, and uh, as was VVA. 
after speaking to the American Legion and the disabled, they got on board immediately. The Veterans of Foreign Wars was a little tougher nut to crack, but the first day that I was at the National Convention in 1985 asking for their support for a, a, a statue honoring women at, on the Mall, um, they voted no, and I was shocked, and so was Billy Ray Cameron. He was the first Vietnam veteran commander of the VFW ever, yeah. Vietnam veteran commander. Yeah. He thought it would sail through, and uh, he was so stunned that it was voted no, and it was it was a lot of misunderstanding, I think, on the membership's part when they were voting. And Billy Ray said, Diane, we can get this turned around. I know how to do this as a parliamentary procedure. We can get this back on the floor tomorrow, but this is what we have to do. But the next day, um, I stood at the microphone, the pro microphone, and I explained what this memorial was all about. And I went into more detail. And long story short, they voted yes very for the good. resolution or the very next day. But it, it wasn't easy, but there was a lot of bitterness among the World War II women. And I understood completely. Interesting. When they came up to me and said, you Vietnam vets, all you think about your, is yourself. You already have a memorial. What about us? And I looked at, at, I looked at these women. There were four of them at the VFW convention. World War II vets wearing their caps. I said, you know, you're right. What about you? you deserve, you've deserved a memorial from day one, and you don't have one either. And But I said, I, I don't know how I would honor you because this, is, this statue that I'm working on is to go at the Vietnam Memorial on the grounds, and we can't put one there for all women who have ever served because this is for Vietnam. It's very tied to the memorial. Yeah, absolutely. It's Vietnam vets. People aren't doing that. Nobody's doing this for us, by the way. We're doing it for ourselves. And yeah. the Vietnam vets built the wall, too, by the way. Nobody did it for them, for us. Yeah. We did it. And you know what? Two years later, these women got together, and then they got a memorial at at the entrance to Arlington Cemetery, WIMSA, Women in Military Service to America Memorial. They call it the Women's Memorial, Military Women's Memorial. So they got together as a result of Vietnam women getting their memorial, they wanted one too. And it's beautiful. It's at Arlington Cemetery. It honors women past, present, and future. And more and more World War II women and Korean veteran women got together and they got a memorial done like we got it done. So yeah, it was it was interesting, Tanner, where the opposition came from. And um, I never would have thought World War II women nurses would have been part of the initial opposition. <laughs> yeah, but, but but a handful. But then at, sure. the, at the second day when the vote came through, this World War II woman got up and bless her heart. She stood with us. She said, I love these women. I want to see them honored and recognized. We weren't, but that's not their fault. Outstanding. And you know, it's true. The first day when the resolution was voted down and I was booed, there were men booing me off the floor. And I had served my country over six years and I was a combat nurse in Vietnam and there were men booing me. And it was so discouraging. I thought this would never happen among my fellow veterans. So I was so demoralized. I walked out and I was in the back, you know, this convention is huge. There's thousands of people there. I was in the convention hall in the main lobby area and I felt, oh no, somebody was behind me and I felt this finger pushing my ribs in the back. 
And I turned around and this man looked at me and he said, think about yourselves. He said, uh, our women from World War II, they don't have their memorial. Well, all of a sudden there were these Vietnam vets coming over. They heard this. They saw the altercation and they came over and one of the Vietnam vets, God bless him, he looked right at these guys and he said, you know, you guys have had 42 years to honor your women. Why haven't you done it? Boom. But so the Vietnam vets were standing up for me. But and and there were World War Two vets that did, too, then, because this is what happened the second day when they voted yes. And then I was not booed off the. I went out and I thought, oh, no, who's going to follow me out here now? And it was another man. And he came up to me and I was just waiting for the spittle to start flying. And and I thought, oh, I'm just going to remember what my dad told me from the farm. He said, Diane, don't ever get into a pissing contest with a skunk. And I just <laughs> love it. I kept my composure and I prayed for grace like I did in Vietnam. I just, OK, God, give me some grace here. And grace, what does grace mean? Grace means calm. You become calm. You, you just, you know, and respectful, even when people don't deserve it. But he came up to me and he said, you know, ma'am, I voted for you yesterday and I voted for you today. And one of the things I had said the second day was, you know, us nurses went to Vietnam to bring you men home alive. Men here in this room, certainly many of you had nurses care for you on the battlefield. We're veterans of foreign wars. You've been on battlefields. And I said, someone's son died in my arms. That's what we did in Vietnam. And that's why this memorial is so important. Yeah. To honor these women. And then I shut up and I sat down and they voted. So when I went back out into the lobby, now just waiting for more animosity, this man just had tears in his eyes. And he said, I hope you were the nurse who held my son in Vietnam because he died in a hospital in Vietnam. And I just want to thank you. And I hope you get your memorial. So, you know, for every one of these bad guys, there were these these kind of guys. And they came out of the woodwork in mass. We did not get this memorial built without the help of men and veterans like the American Legion. And, and yeah. then the VFW got fully behind us after that. It was just a rocky road to get started, Tanner, and I think it was these old myths and stereotypes. You had to break through them. You had to get to them, and someone had to stand up and start that conversation. It's just it's just something that, that wasn't considered at the time. It just wasn't a thing, and, and, and people just had to get used to it, and so be it. Uh, now we're in 2021, and it's it's commonplace, and uh, there's still there's still there's 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 still some things to do, and some things some places to go, and some some mountains some peaks to hit, but. For the most part, uh, you know, we've come a long way, we've come a real long way where performance matters. And that's the only thing that matters. All of the above. You said it well, Tanner. So, Diane, what and I've seen the memorial. I that's one of my that's honestly, honestly, one of the most striking memorials in the National Mall. And if you haven't seen it, it's the one with a, a female veteran a nurse holding a, a, a Vietnam veteran in her arms. It's, it's very striking. Um, what do you hope? the Women's Vietnam Memorial conveys to those that stop by and look at it. The sculpture designed by Glenna Goodacre of Santa Fe, New Mexico, was brilliant. She entered a design competition, 350 uh, entries, and and we liked hers. And she, she captured the essence of Vietnam. Women went to Vietnam because of wounded soldiers. Yeah. And she, it was her idea, not ours. It was an anonymous 
an anonymous. Uh, we didn't know who the entrants were until we saw who we voted for. Sure. And Keep it impartial. The, the, um, she captured the essence that everything was sandbagged in Vietnam. There were sandbags everywhere. Our hooches were lined with, to the brim, to the roof, because of the shrapnel and incoming. Yeah. And yeah. hospitals were sandbagged to the hilt. And, and, you know, so sandbags was the setting appropriately. And then the nurse tending to that wounded soldier who faces the apex of the wall, by the way. And then the two other women who are to resep- represent all those other women who weren't nurses. It's not a nurse's memorial. It's a women's memorial. The standing woman... All that Glenna read was we were always looking up for a helicopter. They were coming in with the wounded. She is looking for a helicopter. The kneeling woman portrays the futility and the fatigue and the tragedy of war. Yeah, she's very she's well, looking down. Very and, well, by the way. I mean, it's, it's striking. She captured how we felt in Vietnam and how we looked. And there's no rank. It, we, this could be enlisted women, can be officer. It doesn't matter. We were women. Rank does not matter. And neither does do patches that say we were with some brigade or with some unit. No patches. The only thing that's on the statue is one set of dog tags around the standing woman, who is a woman of color. Yeah. Uh, dog tags around her neck. So the she said the interpretation for the visitor should be left up to the viewer. The viewer can decide for herself or himself what the message is. But the message is women with courage and strength and they were there to do their part and um, they were brave and they're now standing with the men they served with and the men who's, and women whose names are on the wall. But Admiral Crowe said it so beautifully. He had been chairman of the Joint Chief of Staff and he and General Colin Powell and General Shalas Kashvili and, and the men in very high-ranking positions got behind our effort and were 100% in support of honoring women yeah. as they should be the leadership in the military, knowing that women are important to our cores. And um, they got behind it behind the scenes. And when you, they, when men like that get, get behind the scenes, there's heads that roll and some did. <laughs> uh, it was pr- kind of priceless. And people have to read my book to find out what that was about. But he said, may this memorial be a shining beacon for all, all the women who serve in all future, um, you know, military uh, endeavors. This is a shining beacon. And, and that shining beacon is that these women deserve the honor and the recognition to be on the national mall. Yes. That's huge. I mean, I literally was told that I could take my memorial idea down the Potomac, that there were other places if I wanted in Washington, D.C. or it's in environs to take it down the Potomac. But it wasn't going on the mall because we didn't deserve to be on the mall. This is in testimony, written testimony to Congress wow. with people's names, you know, and that's in my book, too. I've named I've held people accountable, people who have said these things. And it is a shining beacon. Because I've met so many Iraq and Afghanistan women veterans, Middle East, current, you know, and in the, in the past decades, who come to our memorial and love it and say, this is our memorial, too. It's it's one that I, I don't I honestly don't forget when I when I walk by it. It's it's very, like I said, I think striking for me is, is the is the term I'd always I'd always I always stop and look at it. It's like it's, it's a very nice memorial. It's beautiful. Thank you. And and another thing you talked about, um, all the all the turbulent times coming home and 
And you talked about my generation a little bit, uh, you know, post 9-11, uh, Desert Storm, Iraq veterans. You know, we we recognize and you and you've and you've also mentioned, you know, thank you for your service was not a thing when you when you came home. And it, unfortunately, I think it was a cross that you your generation bore. So we enjoy what what we do, what we have when we come home today. And I just want to say thank you uh, for your service and, and, and welcome home. And, and, and I do appreciate you for what the crosses that your generation did bear. Thank you, Tanner. And, and I know that your generation, like you said, post 9-11, Desert Storm, many of you worked with Vietnam veterans at the time. They yeah. hadn't retired yet. But we, we Vietnam veterans know how much you since 9-11, the, the post-Vietnam, let's say post-Vietnam, we realize how much you guys, men and women in the military, appreciated us because you saw how we were treated and you knew it could happen to you and you didn't want to serve your country knowing no. that the nation that we are serving could treat us like they did. Yeah. So Vietnam veterans stood up like Vietnam veterans of America said, never again shall one generation of veterans forget the next generation. And yeah. Vietnam veterans, you know, the whole welcome home thing, the, the whole, the, 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 the sea change in how we view veterans and military personnel today is because of what the Vietnam veterans endured. And never again do we ever want to see another generation treated like we were treated. Yes. And so Vietnam veterans, you know, this whole thing about the greatest generation, they were great. And I have deep admiration for them. But let me say this. There is greatness in every generation, and that there is, it is undeniable that there is greatness in the Vietnam generation, and I defend them. And I will always defend my generation of veterans for who we were and what we did and, you know, acknowledging what we went through when we came home. And there is just as much greatness in them, the veterans, as as in World War II, because I saw how brave these young men were. They were just as brave as any soldier in any war. I guarantee you, I saw it. The greatness in the country, I think, is 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 what we question because our nation didn't pull together like World War II. People, my parents, my dad was a farmer. He rationed tires. He rationed gas. My mother rationed. It was all for the good of the nation. Well, the the population during the 60s, rightfully so, Americans didn't think that the Vietnam War was so great. Yeah. And they didn't pull together to win it yes. like they did for World War II because they didn't see the virtue in this whole domino theory. And that's lack of leadership. Point to Washington, D.C. For, for all of that, but don't point to the soldiers. I totally understand with you. I appreciate you. And, and absolutely, I, I can understand where you're coming from. That was our uncles. That was our fathers. That was our, you know, I, I think of my uncle who served in, in Vietnam. Absolutely. And your aunts and your grandmas. Yes. Yes. And my aunts and my grandmas. Um, Diane, real quick, what is one thing in service that you learned and kept with you throughout your life? Esprit de corps equals uh, good performance and morale. And that carried through to the Vietnam Women's Memorial effort because those 10 years, the morale became very low. A sure. lot of, um, oh, just it was so difficult and, and so much coming at us that was mean-spirited and ugly and I had to take the high road. I had to keep the morale up. I had to take the high road and say, we're not lowering ourselves. We're not going to respond to that. 
So what I knew in military nursing was that if you have good morale in your unit, you're helping your medics, especially the medics. They they needed help with their morale. It, it's a you know when there's chaos all around you. I can you only imagine. You, and so I I felt like it was important for me to have good esprit de corps and compliment my medics, pat them on the back. Nobody else was doing it, and nobody ever patted me on the back in Vietnam. Uh, the senior officers just they had their own problems and their own. I don't know. They never came around and said, Lieutenant. Are you okay? Do you need some help? You know, you're doing a great job. Thank you. That never, ever happened. And I've talked to other nurses, um, but we were just there to do our job, and we did it. And we didn't do it for medals. We didn't do it for pats on the back. Sure. But I felt it was important during the 10 years of building the Viet. If I'm going to keep this thing going, I need help and integrity and being honest and truthful and keeping your eye on the ball and not giving up on the mission. Oh, I was told that we should settle for something less, that I was, I, I was too uh, rigid, that if, if we didn't take something less, we weren't getting anything at all. And I said, no, the mission is a statue to, to complete the, the statue that's there, to a counterpoint. We have a statue looking like men. Why would we take a rose garden and park benches, which was, or a bas-relief, which were all things that were said we could have this and we could have that, but we, could, we were never going to get a statue. And I said, we have to complete the mission. And, and, and that's the goal. And keep your eye on the goal, keep your eye on the ball, and don't give up on that. And, and it was the not giving up, Tanner. I didn't give up in Vietnam. Never once did I say, I just want to go home and play golf. Why couldn't I just go home and learn how to play tennis and be normal? <laughs> I, I couldn't go to a park. There were no parks in Vietnam. We, we, what was there? We could go to the beach and get bit by a sea snake or caught in an undertow, which I did get caught in an undertow. Yeah. Um, but that was just a little sideline there, I guess. But um, So, yes, the military trained me for um, what I could accomplish into the future. Very good. Is there anything else that you would like to add that I maybe have missed or haven't asked that you think would be important to share? You know, there are other people like me out there who want to accomplish something and, and finish it to the fruition and keep the eye on the ball and not give up. But, you know, if it means losing your family, you have to weigh what is, at the end of the day, what is the most important thing? If this would have meant my marriage, I would have given it up. I had a husband who was uh, doing his surgery, a residency, when I met him, taking care of Vietnam vets. And so I think, for me, it was a blessing I married this guy because he understood. He, although I wouldn't talk to him about Vietnam, he understood me deeply. And he was my rock, and he would not give up on me when times were rough. And he was always there for me, supporting me. And when I told him one day, I can't do this anymore, it's too hard. I had four kids under the age of 10 when I founded the Vietnam Women's Memorial. They were just kids and they grew up during these and became teenagers. And I, I we had four teenagers at home then after a while and it was hard. And there were times I just knew I had to give it up. And he said, you, you can't quit now. I was just lucky that I had a husband who, who stuck with me and supported me and defended me, and a mother who was a retired nurse who, took, who came to take care of the kids. Every time I left to go give another speech, my mom came, grandma, to take care of the kids, and I didn't worry about the kids. They loved wow. their grandma. My mother 
my husband loved my mother. And so I was blessed. I had family to support me, family to help get me through this, or I could not have done it. So I give them enormous credit for that. And because, you know, it's it's easy to have an idea, but to execute the idea to fruition is the challenge. And you need you just need a lot of a combination of a lot of things in your life to help you move that forward. And I was lucky enough to have that. There are nearly two million women veterans who served and deserve the best care anywhere. At each VA medical center nationwide, a women veterans program manager is available to advise, advocate, and coordinate care for women veterans. Women veterans who are interested in receiving care at VA should call the Women Veterans Call Center at 855-VA-WOMEN or contact the nearest VA medical center and ask for the Women Veterans Program Manager. I want to thank Diane for coming on Born the Battle and sharing her amazing stories. Love her spirit. You can find more about Diane at vietnamwomensmemorial.org forward slash vwmf.php. This week's Born the Battle Veteran of the Week is from Marine Corps history, but you can find her story at foundationforwomenwarriors.org. Barbara Jean Dolinsky was born on October 18, 1928, in San Francisco, California. She first enlisted in the Marine Corps in 1951 and became a senior drill instructor for female Marines at Paris Island, South Carolina. Dolinsky went on an 18-hour flight and arrived at Ben Hoa Air Force Base just 30 miles outside of Saigon. When Dolinsky first arrived, she was held overnight due to safety concerns on the unsecure roads. The next day, she was given a briefing on security concerns, recognizing booby traps, and checking cabs. When Dolinsky set foot in Vietnam on March 18, 1967, she became the first female Marine to ever serve in a combat zone. She requested to be sent to Vietnam, and she served as an administrative chief at the U.S. Military Assistance Command in Vietnam Combat Operations Center in Saigon. Dolinsky's choice to volunteer in Saigon opened doors for many women in the Marine Corps. She retired from the Marine Corps in 1974 and lived in San Francisco for a period of time until she moved to Kent, Washington. She lived there until she passed away of natural causes in 1995 at the age of 66. Marine Corps veteran Barbara Jean Dolinsky. We honor her service. That's it for this week's episode. If you yourself would like to nominate a Born the Battle Veteran of the Week, you can. Just send an email to podcast at va.gov, include a short write-up, and let us know why you'd like to see him or her as the Born the Battle Veteran of the Week. And if you like this podcast episode, hit the subscribe button on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Spotify, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, pretty much any podcatching app known to phone, computer, tablet, or man. For more stories on veterans and veteran benefits, check out our website, blogs.va.gov, and follow the VA on social media, Facebook, Instagram, 
YouTube, Twitter, Rally Point, Pinterest, LinkedIn, DEPT Vet Affairs, U.S. Department of Veterans Affairs. No matter the social media, you can always find us with that blue check mark. And as always, I'm reminded by people smarter than me to remind you that the Department of Veterans Affairs does not endorse or officially sanction any entities that may be discussed in this podcast, nor any media products or services they may provide. I say that because the song you're hearing now is called Machine Gunner, which is courtesy of the nonprofit organization Operation Song, and was written by Marine veteran Mark McKilhenny, Nashville songwriter Jason Seaver, and Michael Duncan. Thank you again for listening, and we'll see you right here next week. Take care. We gotta get them one way or the other. Machine gun. Firefight bullets fly day and night rain. Simplified till we're down another campaign. My desk is a rock where the drug lords cut up millions. My pen is a 7.62 round that'll cut them down in an instant. Russian-made bullet in my bag Raining down lead Punching that clock Get them, boys, I'm laying down Cover machine gunner bullets fly Day and night rain Simplified to or die Another campaign Here we go, lock and load 0331, lug a thousand rounds And I ain't bringing back one